Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Double Down WNBA podcast. Eric Namchak here alongside Stephen Trinkwald. Stephen, it has been a little while. Uh, we have one of our favorite exercises to go over once again. Uh, what do we have today? We will be discussing our top 10 players in the WNBA. Uh, we That's did right. this a little less than a year ago. Things have changed, I would say, pretty significantly, at least in the middle of the list uh, and a little bit at the top for me as well. Um, but just a, a little bit of uh, table setting that we can get into. This is not an MVP ballot necessarily. This is not strictly who has been the best players for this season, this WNBA campaign. This is just kind of who we think the very best players in the world are if we were sort of starting one season today, one regular season, one playoff run, hoping to kind of maximize your your chances to win the title, right? Yeah. And just uh, just before anybody gets angry with us and says, uh, where's Brittany Griner? We are not including Brittany Griner on this because we feel like it just wouldn't be fair. It, it wouldn't be respectful to uh, be talking about her like in a basketball context, right? While well, she's essentially being held hostage. So uh, free BG. We, uh, we really hope we can get her back safely in the United States soon. Um, anything to add to that? No. Uh, we, we hope she returns home safely as, as soon as possible. But like you said, would not be appropriate, I think, to include her in this discussion. Um, a little bit more just about kind of the exercise itself. We'll be sort of placing players into tiers. I think Eric's philosophy is pretty similar to mine. But for, for me, like any player within the same tier as another player, I think has a reasonable case to be a, above or below any other player in that tier. You know, the real delineation for me is kind of between tiers. So, you know, for example, you know, kind of a spoiler here, but there's a bigger gap for me for like player four and player five than there is between player five and player 12, even though it's obviously a significant difference, you know, and then just the number of players. But those tier breaks are kind of where you really separate, I think, who these players are as, as really impact makers, I guess. Also, for our benefits, tiers are they just make it more helpful to basically split these players up, I think, because uh, 10, you know, it, it's it's, a, it's an interesting cutoff point because there are more than 10 very good players in the WNBA. And I don't know about you, I'm a big nerd. I use Google Sheets when I uh, put these things down. And if I put them into tiers and it's easier to just say, okay, uh, Brianna Stewart and Asia Wilson are at the top and, you know, Courtney Vanessa and Neko Gumake are near the bottom of this list. But, you know, it's easier to move them around when they're in tiers and stuff like that. So um, uh, should we get started? Yeah, let's do it. Who did right, you have as the number one player in the WNBA? I had, as the number one player in the WNBA, Brianna Stewart. Also alone in tier number one. How about you? Just like you had last year, Eric. I'm not sure if you recall, but you had Brianna Stewart in a tier by herself last year. I did not. I had uh, Brianna Stewart in a three-player tier. Oh, last year, which I do as well. But um, she's still number one for me. Uh, she's, I think, the best player in the world. And I did seriously consider kind of, as you have it, sort of a standalone one player tier one. You know, I, I didn't really have like a, a you know, it, it didn't really kind of like, a, I guess, drive me crazy who I was going to put number one. It, it, was a, it was a pretty easy choice. But, you know, the, the other players, I think, in this neighborhood were, were close enough to be in the same tier for me, but but we'll get to them when we get to them. Uh, what what sort of separated Brianna Stewart from the rest of the, the league for you? Well, it's interesting. The first thing you brought up is that just like last year, I had Brianna Stewart number one in a tier of her own. And when I was looking at her stats uh, this year relative to her career, they are very consistent. 
I mean, just under 21 points, just over seven rebounds, just under three assists, 1.9 steals. Those are more or less, besides the rebounds, which are down a little bit, in line with their career numbers, with only the rebounding kind of taking a little dip. And I think you can kind of factor uh, the emergence of Ezi Magwigor into that. She also got similar free throw attempt rate, about uh, 0.386 free throw attempt rate, 58.2 true shooting percentage. Really, really good. The one thing that really stood out to me about Brianna Stewart, she's second in the league in usage, 28.9%, and is only turning the ball over on 6.2% of her possessions, according to across the timeline. That is elite. That is really, really, really good when you factor in the workload that Brianna Stewart is carrying. She does it all for you, and she very rarely turns it over. And uh, that's just speaking on offense. I mean, there we could talk about defense as well. I think she's... In my opinion, probably the favorite for Defensive Player of the Year at this point. What do you think? Yeah, I would agree with everything you just said. You know, also probably the MVP front runner for me, the Defensive Player of the Year front runner for me as well. Should probably be going on her third MVP campaign. Honestly, um, one of the three or so best offensive players in the league, undoubtedly, and probably a little bit more defensive versatility than the other two players I have in this tier. Um, mm-hmm. She maybe doesn't have, or I shouldn't even say have, she she doesn't necessarily have the chance to showcase, I guess, kind of positional versatility as much as some other players in contention for kind of the best player in the world. You know, Asia Wilson plays, you know, split positions a little bit more. Stewart is primarily really just a four. They don't play her a ton at the five, even though I think she could probably hang. Maybe some of that is just sort of injury and, and wear and tear concerns. Um, but her versatility defensively, you know, I think she's probably the best or one of the best weak side help defenders in the league. She's definitely the best player that I had kind of in consideration for this tier in terms of like defending the perimeter, particularly on hedges and forcing turnovers out on the perimeter and then sort of recovering back. Um, I agree. You know, I don't think she's maybe has like the strength, you know, the physical strength of Asia Wilson, just in terms of defending the biggest, strongest back to the basket players. But I do think she's a superior help defender rotating over, as I mentioned before, not by much, you know, Asia is is very, very good in in that regard. And then her perimeter skills offensively, you know, outside of just shooting the basketball, you know, she can run the break for you offensively, she can handle up top. I mean, you kind of create the list of bigs in the league, where you can sort of run an inverted pick and roll with the big as the ball handler and having a small screen for you. Like you're not doing that with a lot of other players that are going to be at the top of this list. The the list of, of players that you're really realistically doing that with probably tops out at, at three, I would say. You know, I, I think the term unicorn is thrown out a lot when discussing these very skilled WNBA bigs. That's I have a little bit of an issue with using the term unicorn for several people, but if there is a unicorn, I think it is Brianna Stewart. I mean, she's just so skilled with the basketball defensively. She moves so incredibly well, and her timing is good too. I mean, you you have you have bigs who move really well, but you know their timing isn't all, isn't all the way there. They're still I don't know maybe their their mind is going a little faster than their body or vice versa. But Brianna Stewart, her timing is excellent. She's long and she uses that wingspan to great effect. Um, and as you said, like I think she's an underrated passer and, and, and playmaker as well. That usage, obviously, really high. That comes from a lot of scoring. But if you wanted to, I think you could kind of rein Brianna Stewart in and have her do some secondary playmaking as well. She is just that good of a player. And the other thing that uh, this doesn't apply strictly to Brianna Stewart, I mean, this honestly applies to pretty much all the players I have at the very top of this exercise here is that they just never fall. You know, you don't have to worry about them yeah. really getting into fall trouble. They're going to create 
more fouls for the other team than, you know, you have to worry about them kind of getting into early foul trouble or, or even late in the game, you know, picking up a couple silly ones. So, um, which especially for Brianna Stewart, that, that, that emphasizes, or it is emphasized by how many turnovers she forces, right? So she's not fouling on one end and she's creating turnovers. She's, she's creating steals. Um, so sorry to jump in there. I just, I just think that kind of, yeah, no, that's right. Uh, I think that that probably wraps up what we have to say about Brianna Stewart. She's a player we talk about a lot. The one thing I had to add about Brianna Stewart actually is uh, looking through the synergy numbers. And by the way, this is we are recording this on uh, the seventeenth, July seventeenth, and I think most of our stats were from before the seventeenth. So like the storm played today, it did not have any bearing on whether or not I thought Brianna Stewart was the best player in the WNBA. The, but, this wasn't um, the tiebreaker for you, Eric? Regular no, season was, against the them, uh, them blowing out the 5-21 and 21 fever was not the tiebreaker, unfortunately. But um, according to Synergy, she is the only player besides Sylvia Fowles, at least in consideration for me, who ranked in the 90th percentile in both transition and half-court offensive efficiency. And of course, she gets out in transition a lot more than Sylvia Fowles does. So I think that says a lot to her, her versatility and her excellence all over the floor. All right. Who did you have number two? At number two, I had Asia Wilson of Las Vegas Aces. Yes, Asia Wilson. My tier two had uh, three players in it. I'm assuming yours was about the same. Uh, well, you're, you're still in your tier one, right? So who'd you have at number two? I also had Asia Wilson, a player oh, wow. who, not to keep <laughs> harkening back on last year, but has climbed up a spot from both of ours. We both had Asia as the number three player on our list last year, and now she's uh, the second best player in the league, I think. Um, yeah. Also... Worth noting, really, I mean, spoiler alert, but the only player on my list that's, you know, 25 years old or younger. It's remarkable that she's been able to be this good, this young. Kind of the baseline numbers, 19 points, 10 rebounds, three stocks on 59% true shooting. Having She's the uh, she's the only player currently averaging a double-double, correct? Wow, I didn't know that, actually. Um, I think she I, is. I believe you. By far her most efficient scoring season, I think, finally kind of playing center has seen a bit of uh, that increase in her efficiency just right at the door of 60% true shooting is kind of, you know, what you would expect to see from like, you know, an MVP bigs season uh, and, and she's right there. So that that's, you know, we were kind of wondering if her game would really transform and how we've seen it manifest is just being so much more effective, kind of attacking the rim and settling less on, on mid ranges because there is more room to work as many had predicted. So, you know, she's just a monster at the rim and she's just unstoppable, you know, probably, well, not probably, statistically the best player in the league at getting to the free throw line. Like she's just going to get your, your the opposing team in foul trouble. And, you know, she's a great defensive player as well. This is Asia's fifth year in the WNBA. It would be her third year leading all WNBA players in total free throw attempts. She ranked second in 2021. So that's just a ridiculous number. You, you told me the other day that uh, she's the best in the league at drawing fouls versus legal defense. And that's not shade. That's saying like Asia Wilson gets fouled like a lot. She gets fouled a lot. That's going to be her game is, and she really kind of embodied the Bill Lambert era aces in this, you know, she was drawing a lot of fouls and she wasn't fouling on the other end. Maybe that's, that, that's still kind of carried over to the, the Becky Hammond era. Cause the aces aren't just going to forget how to not foul in, in a matter of months. But I think you said it right away. Asia Wilson playing the five full time has really, brought out her strengths even more you know i wouldn't say she's like the best rim protector in the league but she's definitely now in a position where she can make more plays on the basketball as a rim protector like she's not gonna be covering as much ground as brianna stewart but her being at the five you know like i said it 
it puts her in a position to make more plays on the basketball at the rim. You don't have to worry about her maybe getting a little out of position, maybe in the nail area or beyond the uh, the free throw line there. But yeah, I mean that that offensive ability is just is just incredible. The word that you always like to use for Asia Wilson is undeniable. She is inevitable. Um, you know, I think a big part of our criteria when we're making this list is, as you said at the top, players who we would most want on our team in a, in like a must win game or a must win playoff series. Asia is to me third at worst in the WNBA. Like if I, if I need to win a basketball game or if I need to win a fourth quarter, I'm taking Asia Wilson over just about anybody in the league. And I think the fact that at this point in her career, the restricted area is now her most frequent scoring zone for the first time in her career really speaks volume to the growth in her game and the growth in her aggressiveness. You know, she's she still takes mid-rangers and those are still a good shot for her. You know, she's, it's not like she's shooting that at, 33% or something, but she's she's just getting to the front of the room, which is exactly where she needs to be, and, and she's a really, really great finisher. Even if you take away getting to the free throw line, you know, her her scoring without the free throws is, is still amazing. I think she is, you know, maybe an imperfect player defensively playing the center, but, you know, she's, she's also playing with imperfect personnel defensively to kind of maximize her at center, and, you know, she... I don't think Asia Wilson playing center defensively is going to like prevent you from winning a championship. She's plenty good, I think. No, no, yeah. She's good enough. More than good enough. Should we move on? Do you have anything else to say about Asia Wilson? I mean, she's awesome. Like We, we talk about yeah, her all the time. She's but. incredible. Um, this, this is honestly one of the most difficult parts of this exercise for me is coming up with new things to say about players who we already know are amazing. Um, so if you want to move on to the uh, your number three player, you can go right ahead. Sure, I will, because this is a player we did not talk about last year. Uh, Elena Deladon back was, okay. as a reminder, not included for consideration for this last season just because, you know, she had not played since 2019. I think this episode actually came out in between her first and second games last year, but I think we had recorded it before that, um, and we probably wouldn't have included her after one game anyway. But she has been maybe not every bit as good as Picolina Della Don, but she's been, I think, the the rising tide that lifts all offensive boats that she's always been, even if her individual numbers are, are not there. By your reaction, it sounded like maybe Elena Deladon was lower on this list for you. No, no. I actually had her at number three as well. Um, it just feels good to talk about Elena Deladon again. Uh, 59.52 shooting percentage, shooting 41.2% on three-pointers. Still awesome. 25.8% usage, only 7.7% turnovers. So along those same lines of Brianna Stewart, she is elite at scoring the basketball, more efficiently so than Stewart, and she never turns it over. For my money, she's still the best offensive player in the league. Uh, I think it's close between her and, and, and BG when, when Griner is, is here. And maybe I, I agree Stewart. with you, by the way. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, there's an interesting quote. Uh, Fred Williams, our inter interim head coach of the LA Sparks right now, he says, uh, Elena Deladon, Deladon disrupts her defense by walking into the building. And that's true. I mean, everything the Mystics do offensively, because she scores from anywhere. You can't guard her with any one individual player, no matter who it is. I mean, I mean, what else she, is there She just gravitates the defense, whether she's playing on the perimeter or playing inside. And she's still yeah. tremendously effective as a player in either of those regards. Honestly, like her two-point finishing has probably been better than I expected. Like she's still tremendously effective around the rim her her elevation like the way that she's just able to pause midair in front of the rim in her you know she's played 16 of their 25 games so far this year all but one of them I think have been planned rests you know so if you if you want to say this is too high because she's just not reliable enough I I get it but 
you know, I'd rather have Elena Deladon for 75% of my games than any other player below her for 100% of our games, you know? That's fair. That's very fair. Uh, going back to what you were talking about originally, I, her footwork is just incredible. It's interesting because you usually think of a big with good footwork, like, oh, you know, it's, it's good post moves or whatever. Like, Elena Deladon has amazing footwork no matter what kind of move. She's got moves for days. She's she's She can get by anybody, um, and that's not just, like, blowing by them off the dribble. Like, she's really patient with her pivot foot and her fakes and her up-and-unders, like you said, and that's why she's, in my opinion, the best at least the best one-on-one offensive player in the league, I would say. But to your second point, yeah, that, that's another thing. You know, when I said for Asia Wilson, there's only a few players I'd, I would really like to have. I, I would for sure have, like right off the top of my mind, if it's a must-win game, if it's a must-win fourth quarter. Wilson's one of them. Stewart's one of them. Deladon is definitely one of them because she can just make any shot. Any shot. And for Elena Deladon, you know, just have a couple more things to say here. Like, I think on-off numbers are extremely noisy. Like, we would all probably admit that. But they I do are, think yeah. they tell the story pretty well for Elena Deladon. Like, this is an elite defense pretty much all the time. But they really struggle offensively anytime she's not out there. And, you know, they've had, obviously, plenty of opportunity for her to not be out there. A lot of times, on-off numbers can be extremely noisy because your best players are playing an overwhelming majority of your minutes so that the number of minutes that they're not out there, you know, it's just too small to really get a judgment. But we we have a pretty good sample size of what this team looks like without Elena Deladon, and it's not very good. And they are pretty good when she's available. She's just one of the few players, if not the one and only player in the league to me, where she pretty much just guarantees a good offense if you have her out there. Like she is, I kind of said it before, but she is sort of an offensive rising tide that, you know, you can throw five defensive players out there or, or four, or, uh, I mean, you're not going to play five on six, obviously you can throw four <laughs> defensive players out there around her. And, you know, as long as they can kind of shoot all right, and maybe they're a little bit more limited off the dribble or they have some flaws in their game. You know, this team doesn't have an elite creator. They don't really have like a typical, here's your second best offensive player on a championship team, but you can still see this team competing for a championship because they have Elena Deladon. You know, you know what's interesting? What, what what just came to mind when you brought that up is I there's a term that is thrown around in basketball among basketball fandom and analysis. Oh, so-and-so makes their teammates better. But it's usually players who, you know, pass the ball a lot. It's usually players who maximize their, their teammates by passing the ball. Elena Ch- Chelsea Gray makes her teammates better. Yeah, Chelsea Gray makes her teammates better. Better. Courtney Vanessa makes her teams be- teammates better. Elena Deladon makes her teammates better by being good at basketball, right? <laughs> so like Fred Williams said, she disrupts her defense by being there. And, you know, when you talk about uh, it, she her presence makes the offense better, it checks out. Like, you've seen the Mystics without her. There is a good enough sample size where these planned rest days, the Mystics really need to change every single thing they're doing on offense. Like, Cloud gets more responsibility. Austin gets more responsibility. Heinz Allen and Atkins get more responsibility. If Deladon is not on the floor, they are lacking a significant piece of their offense. And you could say that for every single roster that she's been on because she is just that good of an offensive player. So, again, I know a play finisher like Deladon, you may not think about, oh, she makes her teammates better. But she does make her teammates better because she's really freaking good at basketball. The only thing that had concerned me about Deladon at this position. What kept me from making her number two is that I think her rebounding is not as good for a, for a big and a player of her height and someone who plays the four. Uh, like she's never been the best rebounder, but um, I don't know. How about you? Um, well, you know, to that, this kind of bleeds into the conversation of 
the next player I have here, but I think she she is a good team rebounder. Like I don't think her numbers are amazing in terms of her own individual defensive rebounding, but I mean, you go back to these, I mean, maybe I'm just kind of taking one series uh kind of overvaluing it too much, but you you go back to that 2019 finals and Jonquil Jones, you know, was not able to be effective on the offensive glass really at all in that series when Elena Deladon was available. The one game where she w- John Quell really got on the offensive glass was that game two where she got hurt. And, you know, Deladon just kind of knows she uses her body well. Maybe she's not pulling them down herself. But when, you know, I guess in, in the most important series at the most important time, you have a player who's an elite offensive rebounder and that element of her game was mitigated because of this specific player. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, just real quick, I think uh, defensively, Deladon is maybe given a, a worse rep than she deserves. Um, you're obviously not thinking of her as a defensive stopper or an all-defensive talent, and certainly not as versatile of a defender as the two players we've mentioned so far. But, you know, even though she doesn't move as well as she did prior to the back injury, I think she does a pretty good job of at least, you know, contesting shots with her length, um, getting her hands on the basketball without fouling, all the things you need your star players to be good at on defense. You know, even if she's not making plays on the basketball, I would not classify her as a rim protector, and I would not want her defending on the perimeter. However, you know, her presence in the paint or at the nail, it's enough to make a lot of guards at least think twice about challenging her. And for the amount of, for the impact that she makes on offense, that's really all I need from Deladon on defense. I would say she probably has like the narrowest utility defensively of all these players, but she can still be very effective in a part of a defense that's good enough to win a championship you know she's Which played she she's played asia wilson well in playoff series she's played candace parker well in playoff games obviously like i just mentioned john quell jones she's had good success against defensively so she's not killing you yeah you don't want her guarding in space like that she's definitely the worst of these three players in that specific element but the overall total package i think you'll be fine most often and and i think these three players as i'm sort of rounding out this tier i know uh, you have one more player in the same tier as these these other two. Like the any three of these players, I think have a a realistic case to be the best player in the world throughout a regular season and a playoff run. And I don't really sure. think when you're adding both of those elements together, anybody else in the league really has a case for that. Okay, with that, I think uh, that's a good segue into our fourth overall player. I had John Quill Jones. I think you had John Quill Jones. Am I correct? I did, and I had actually okay. Jonquil Jones in tier two by herself. So she's oh, she's okay. above, clearly above everybody else. I think in this list. Okay, so I would like to get your your thoughts on this. So I also had Jonquil Jones in my second tier. She was the three third out of the three players in my second tier. My perspective from this is that she, you kind of alluded to this as well. Um, she is the easiest of those three players to. Uh, I hate to say this because it's going to make me sound like a hater, and I promise I'm not, but it's the easiest to take her out of the game, at least offensively speaking. Is that too harsh? Well, she's just not the self-creator that these other players are. Like, when you need a bucket late in the game, like, I think you're just kidding yourself if you put John Quill Jones in the same neighborhood as one of those other three players. We're just going to dump it down. Like, offensively, I think she's just the most dependent player we've discussed so far. And, you know, that's a lot of that has to do with the Connecticut offense. I mean, that that team is not very good at spacing the basketball. You have been exceptionally critical of her play breakdowns as far as post-ups versus, you know, spot-ups or coming off screens or all that. And uh, let's, let's not get it twisted. She is still a very 
very good basketball player. In each of the past three seasons, she's ranked in the top five in total rebounding percentage. She's had a true shooting percentage above 60% in every season but 2019. And, you know, offensively, she's still pre she's pretty skilled. You know, she's not dealt on her stirt with the basketball, but she's still very skilled for her size. I mean, dating back to 2018, she's shooting about 36.7% on 3.83s per game. So she's not like a sniper out there, but she can definitely knock them down consistently. And I think in a different offensive ecosystem, you could see John Cole Jones averaging like 21, 22 points per game, right? Yeah, and that actually leads me into something that I want to say about John Quell is that every player that we've talked about so far, at least at one time, has played with like two guards at a time that are better than any offensive guard that John Quell Jones has ever played with, really. You think about, you know, Cloud and Tolliver, obviously Chelsea Gray and Kelsey yeah. Plum, Sue Bird and, and Jewel Lloyd, like. John Quill Jones would kill to play with any of those six players. I mean, maybe she wouldn't, but her offensive game would flourish if she had. It sure would. It sure would. And uh, and, and you think about like the rebound, like that's that's so valuable. You know, I always preach rebounding. And although you said one series in 2019, yeah, the Mystics kind of limited her on the glass. Um, well, the sky think, last year as well. Like her offensive rebounding fell off a cliff last year. In that yes, and, that's, and, and that kind of speaks to my point about kind of taking her out of the game. Although the Sun did kind of have, you know, they were trying to reintegrate Alyssa Thomas in the lineup as well. So I'm just not sure if the Sun schematically were ready for what this guy were bringing defensively. So I, I, are you, where are you going with this? Are you saying like Jones's rebounding numbers are, are kind of smoke and mirrors or? I mean, no, I think, you know, her offensive rebounding is extremely valuable for the regular season. I, I just think when offensive rebound, and I don't think offensive rebounding is her one and only offensive skill, obviously. Like, she's a really great pick-and-roll big. She's a great spot-up player. But that one specific element, you know, I, I just don't think offensive rebounding as a strength really carries over all that well against the very best teams in the league. Is all Well, it, it shouldn't be what you're leading on as a team offense. That's that's for certain. One thing I will say about her offensive rebounding, she actually leads the WNBA in put-back possessions, and she's shooting nearly 70% on those. So, I mean, that is that is a pretty significant part of her game. I think the biggest knock I would have on John Cole's game, and the other reason why I have her below Wilson and Deladon right now, is she actually turns it over a lot more for a player of her role than I would like. 18.3% turnover rate. And she actually turns it over. You know, I was, I was looking at this. I was trying to make these comparisons because there are so many bigs in our list, as expected. She actually turns it over at a higher rate than Candace Parker does, which kind of surprises me given the amount of high leverage passing situations Parker is in compared to John Quell's. Would you say, as a Sun fan, like you watch the Sun every game, right? They... Would you say those turnovers are more a result of just teams crowding her and making life uncomfortable because they don't need to worry about the perimeter threats as much? Well, I would say that John Quill Jones, maybe I would say Stewart, but John Quill Jones is probably the most ambitious passer that we've talked about so far. Oh, yeah. Just trying oh, yeah. to like kind of thread tough passes into, I mean, and her, her passing has grown exponentially over the last few years, but she does still try to make some passes that aren't necessarily high rate of conversion and and you know it's great if she makes them but i do think a lot of her turnovers come from that kind of i mean we talk about high leverage passing like you're going to turn it over more if you just try ambitious passes and and i think john quell definitely does okay anything else on john quell jones i feel like we've almost kind of been too negative about her considering we both have her as the fourth best player in the wnba yeah i mean she's she's a great offensive player and she's a great defense player she's a great defensive playmaker i i think you know she maybe isn't the the very best center in the league in terms of like just guarding the pick and roll two on two or really kind of recovering grad when you need her to play center against a five out offense. She doesn't have like 
elite recovery quickness, like say a Brianna Stewart or an Asia Wilson. Um, but she's good enough. And just like I said, with previous players on this list, like you can certainly win a championship with John Quill Jones as one of your core defensive players. Like that element has kind of not been like what has hampered them in the past. And she's also just gotten so much stronger to me since that yes, 2019 yes. finals that I, I was talking about before, you know, in games where she was not as effective getting into the offensive glass, but also just her drop step. Like she was not strong enough to like do that drop step against a good defender just a couple years ago. And it's a pretty good move for her now. So I wonder what she would look like if she played with like an elite offensive guard. I think things could really kind of open up for her. But one other thing I want to say is I don't think she's played to the level of a best player in a playoff series yet. Maybe you can say the 2019 sweep against the Sparks, but not the 2019 finals and certainly not the second round last year. Which you can say of every player we've mentioned so far, right? Yeah, pretty comfortably, I, yeah. I think. That's that's definitely worthy of consideration, for sure. Especially if, if we're talking about our criteria is who would you want in the playoff series? You know, John Cole Jones has been around for a few years now, so uh, we haven't really seen that from her quite yet. But still... An incredible basketball player. We both have her fourth on our top 10 list of WNBA players in 2022. Well, we're four for four. Will it be five for five? Who do you have as your fifth best player, Eric? I'm guessing no, uh, but let's let's roll the dice here. So that that ended, that ended concluded my, uh, my second tier. I have two players in my third tier. Fifth player overall, I have Candace Parker. Five for Candace five. Parker? Oh, really? Okay, why do you have Candace Parker at number five? You know, last year she was not on my 10. She was somewhere in you know, the 11 to 15 range. And I think I I just overvalued kind of box score production maybe and did not value enough, like, you know, I don't want to say the intangibles, but, but the things you really kind of have to pay attention to in terms of what value she brings. Because she brings value in such a different way than the other bigs specifically on this list. Like, not just the other players in general, but, you know, the players that play her position. She obviously is not like a high-volume scorer at this point in her career. She's only taking about 11 shooting possessions per game, you know, under 23% usage. But, and, and this might even feel wild to say about Candace Parker, but I think at this point her in her career, she's more of a ceiling raiser than a floor raiser. Like I think you can see a world where this version of Candace Parker gets kind of placed on a random collection of talent and there's some disaster <laughs> potential there. Uh, am I wrong? No, no, you're not wrong at all. You're not wrong at all. And, and I think... Watching Candace Parker for the past two seasons, you know, in person, obviously, I definitely have noticed the intangibles you refer to. I call it connecting. I th that, that is kind of a basketball term, right? I think she's one of the best connecting players in the WNBA, and she is another one of those players who makes her teammates better, but more in the in the uh, in more obvious ways than, than someone than uh, like Elena Deladon does. Because, I mean, she's still probably the best passing big in the WNBA. But it's not just that. I mean, if you look at every way that the Sky are successful on both ends of the court, Candace Parker's fingerprints are all over that success uh, on both offense and defense because, you know, they run a ton of motion stuff. Uh, last I checked on Synergy, I think this is still the case, but they're the only team that has 10% um, or more of their offensive possessions in the half court coming on cuts, and they are the most efficient cutting team as well. That's all Candace Parker stuff. I mean, it's not all Candace Parker, but her, her playmaking at the top of the key is a huge part of that. And defensively, she just brings that, again, that calming presence on the floor. We saw a couple games where she wasn't playing this season. This guy, not good at all defensively with her off the courts. They just missed that. I almost want to call it coaching because she's so vocal and she's so communicative. And that's another one of those things that, like, 
No, it doesn't show up on the box score, but she is a very intelligent defensive player, and she's a very communicative defensive player. And even at this point in her career, when maybe her, her best athletic days are behind her, she's still getting it done on that end of the court because she successfully kind of transformed her game to where it needs to be to remain at a high level, basically. Let me ask you a question. If you were, if you had a five-game playoff series, we're just talking about as a defensive player, would you rather have yeah. Candace Parker or John Quill Jones at this point? I'd rather have Candace Parker. I agree. I'd rather have Candace Parker. And I, I answer that so easily because, again, well, it kind of goes back to what you were saying. We saw Candace Parker quarterback a defense against John Quill Jones and pretty much take her out of the games relative to her production up until that point. I think Parker is more valuable to the Sky's defense than John Quill is to the Suns' defense. Would you agree? I would agree, yeah. I think this this defense kind of takes a massive hit when she's off the court, and there isn't really any shooting luck that plays into it. Opponents are actually shooting a little bit better from three when she's on the court. I mean, it's basically the same, but like marginally. And I don't know, she's, she's just... You said it, and it, it is a little bit of a cliche, but she's just kind of the quarterback. She's the heart and soul of the defense. She's... We've talked about it a million times, but you can't. She's so versatile defensively. You can stick her on the best post player and have pretty good success, yeah. or you can have her kind of roam a little bit more and kind of give her more help responsibility. And in my opinion, she's still one of the best in the league to to just not guard somebody and make the offense's life completely miserable because she's disrespecting your fifth best player, and you know just kind of camping out in the paint. And I mean, you she's. Know, let, let me tell you something about that. So. Back when, back during the Pokey Chapman, Sylvia Fowles years of the Chicago Sky, kind of when I was first getting into the team, she would hard hedge pick and rolls with Sylvia Fowles, and I hated that. I hated that. One, because it seemed like Fowles would foul on it at least once or twice per game, and two, because it took one of the best rim protectors, probably at that in, in that day, the best rim protector away from the rim. Candace Parker is the best big I've ever seen at the WNBA level, at hedging the pick and roll or hard showing or any kind of aggressive pick and roll coverage without going too far, without fouling, without letting the, the guard kind of goad her into fouling. Um, of course, part of that is, is good uh, rear side defense. And, and people like Azari Stevens and Emma Miesemann have been really, really good at covering for Candace when she's hedging the pick and roll. But I mean, she just knows when and how to exploit those angles with the ball handler. And when you do that correctly, It'll like completely take away a team's dribble penetration. It'll completely take away what that ball handler wants to do. And a good part of defense is making players who don't want to shoot, shoot the basketball. Or making players who don't want to handle the basketball, handle the basketball. And that goes back to my original point about defensive basketball IQ. Candace Parker is such a smart player. She's so smart. It's not even just about instincts. Like You can tell. She, studied, like, she studies the scouting report extensively. She knows how to defend everybody. I mean, and when you get the, the sideline look-ins for a mic'd up player, like you get genuine insights whenever Candace Parker is. Genuine, yes, exactly. And I don't want to I don't want to make this seem like, I don't want to give too many uh, too much meatball analysis here or anything like that, but I mean, as, as a Sky fan who, who sits pretty close to the court, even when she's not in the game, like she is shouting defensive instructions, she's pulling Ezra Stevens aside, she's pulling Emma Meesman aside saying, okay, you need to take this angle. Like she, she's, she's spelling it out for him almost. And uh that sort of thing, like not every player does that. Not every player has the capability of doing that because they don't see the see the game in a way Candace Parker does. But uh, I realize we're kind of going off the rails as far as statistical analysis here, which is off brand for us. But for Candace Parker to still remain this good of a basketball player at this point in her career, there's a lot of that connecting stuff that you need to take into account. 
Yeah, in terms of the regular season, I think she she might be the worst floor raiser of anyone on my whole list of 10, but I'm just putting more value in what she brings to your team in the postseason than the regular season. Uh, and she's also probably going to be on the MVP ballot this year. So, One more thing I wanted to mention, she's actually shooting the three at a higher rate than she ever has. She's taken about 40% of her shots in three-point range, and she's making them, you know, 36.3%. Earlier in her career, or maybe for her entire, her entire career, you wouldn't consider Candace Barker to be like a stretch big or someone who you need to get out on. But looking at how this guy operates offensively, you have Candace Parker operating out there so often, either with screening or with handoffs or with high-low action. She needs to be a threat to take the three ball if they leave her accidentally or purposefully. And that's another way she's adapted her game. She is shooting the three at a higher rate, and she's cashing in. So I think we differ here a little bit in that Candace Parker was the first player in my tier three as player number five and that tier brings me all the way to player number 12 so oh wow there was not a lot of delineation from here on out for me every single ranking for the rest of the way was excruciating for me to figure out how I was going to rank them there's a lot of uh, a lot of back and forth on your end I'm assuming yeah, but with that being said, I still feel pretty confident that we have the same sixth best player in the WNBA. All right, who do you got? I have Sylvia Fowles. Ah, uh, me too, me age too. 36 player from the 2008 WNBA draft. One thing to say is that it's incredible that this might be the final year for two top six players yeah. still in the WNBA with how productive they've been. You know, wish, wish they would keep it going, but happy for their happiness. With I mean, drastically different games, too. Yeah, drastically different games. That, that's right. Um, but, I mean, Sylvia Fowles, obviously a, a massively efficient offensive player, a player you can just kind of reliably give the ball to and score maybe not 25 or 28% usage, but 21 22% pretty reliably. What what sort of separated Sylvia Fowles and Candace Parker from you? What put Parker ahead of Syl? The one thing that put Parker ahead of Syl for me is how dependent Fowles is on somebody getting her the basketball. And that's pretty much it. Because once she does get the basketball, it's over. I, she's shooting 66.1% on post-ups. Come on. Like, w- one thing I know you'd like to talk about is that WNBA teams post up their bigs too often. Like, it's typically not a very efficient possession. Uh, how many bigs off the top of your head would you want posting up? Because Sylvia Fowles has to be number one there, Maybe right? Maybe four. Maybe four. Maybe five. Sylvia know, Fowles has been the quintessential post-up player for so long. And that's, of course, not all she does. She's still an elite rebounder, an elite interior defender. Um, you can leave her one-on-one with any other big in the WNBA and feel perfectly fine about it, which is extremely valuable in itself. But when you factor in her elite pick-and-roll defense, I mean, man, for a, a player of her of her size and her strength and her height to still have that kind of mobility on defense, she's like the ultimate bailout defensive option, if you ask me. Yeah, so she was number four on both of our lists last year. And I mean, she hasn't really seen a performance dip from last year to this year. It's just to me that Candace Parker has been better than she was last year and that Elena Deladon's back. Like, I don't think she's any worse as the number six player than she was no. as the number four player. No, it's, it's very, very close. And, and again, if, if you're talking pure value here, she's one of the very select few players who typically turns a low efficiency play into something you can run your entire offense. Uh, Nikias Duncan uh, wrote an article about this, about, you know, the Lynx, they've been a pretty good offensive team lately, part of their recent uh, research, uh, save for their 57-point performance after they were waiting in the airport for, like, <laughs> forever. Fix the travel issues, Kathy. But, yeah, I mean, Sylvia Fowles, she, she's the best center in the WNBA. Still. 
after all these years? I would say she is well, the worst passer we've got to so far in this Oh, yeah, series. yeah, yeah. That's not her game at all. That's um, not her game at all. She she doesn't have the most versatile offensive game. Like you're saying, she is kind of, you know, a, a little bit guard dependent in that you, you need someone to get you the ball, right? But she is going to score over two, three people, no matter how many people are, are down there. She'll still, I mean, she's maybe the best defensive player of all time, and she's the all-time leader in efficiency. Like, that's a pretty good combination. What more do you want? Like, yeah. what more can you ask for one player? This year, she ranks second in total putback possessions, despite missing how many games like she's still been a really good offensive rebounder too like she still looks pretty spry so i mean you said what else can you say about sylvia sylvia fouls it's i think one small tiebreaker between her and parker is just the versatility on both ends um you know fouls is a little bit kind of is what she is you know there's not a lot of you know boundary stretching of kind of what you're going to ask sylvia fouls to do necessarily And, and parker with the i mean if they're both top six players in the league the one that can maybe give you something inside and outside is just slightly more valuable if you're if you're kind of trying to build a championship team but i mean obviously you know we're we're picking nits here like the, these are <laughs> our two great players absolutely and you know what what maybe what made me think of that um or what that made me think of is if like you if you have a a must score possession like say you're you're down two points or three points at the end of the game you have one possession left you have no timeouts i think i'd rather have Candace parker just because of the playmaking what she can do with the basketball, whereas fouls, you're probably going to be ignoring her unless she's right underneath the rim. Um, but every way she contributes, she contributes at a very, very high level. She's been doing it for a very, very long time, and she's still a top 10 player in the WNBA. Do you think, even as the the most efficient player of all time and still the league leader in true shooting this particular season, do you think she's the worst offensive player we've talked about so far? Oh, man. <laughs> Uh, I mean, worst is like an extremely relative term in this extremely case. Extremely relative, extremely relative. Least versatile, yes. Worst, I don't think so. I think she's a little bit better of an offensive player than John Cole Jones. Okay, all right. John Cole Jones does have the outside jump shot, and she also has a very high true shooting percentage. But. Uh, I think, let me put it this way. I would count more on Sylvia Fowles taking better shots within her own, you know, high efficiency range than John Quinn Jones. Because, you know, Jones likes to, likes the fadeaway two-point jump shot. She likes to spin into that little mid-range two-point jump shot. And it looks good, but, you know, that's just, I'd rather have John Quinn Jones in the post. I'd rather have John Quinn Jones at the rim. Sylvia Fowles is not going to be doing something that she really can't do at a high level, you know? Okay, let's move on. This may be the first time where we diverge. Who do you have for number seven? Is this a new tier for you also? Yes, for me, it's for me, it's a new tier. For me, this is the fourth tier. I have, and this is, uh, make sure you uh, you swallow your drink before you spit it out. Um, I have Skylar Diggins-Smith at number seven overall. This actually wasn't, for this season, this wasn't that difficult for me, and, and here's why. Skylar Diggins-Smith is, to me, pretty easily the best point guard in the WNBA at putting pressure on the rim. And that's not something that's not something a lot of WNBA point guards do, both with Diggins Smith's effectiveness and with her volume. I think you have to ask yourself when you're making this list and you're comparing these players to each other, how important is what they're good at and how rare is what they're good at relative to their position. She's quite easily, in my opinion, she's easily the best point guard in the league at putting pressure on the rim, whether that's either finishing or drawing fouls. And I don't think any other point guard, maybe besides Kelsey Plum, can really carry an offense like Diggins Smith has. You've seen it this season. Uh, she's scoring 8.6 points per game in the paint, by far the most among point guards. 
5.1 free throw attempts per game, converting on 87% of them, easily the most among point guards. Fifth in WNBA in total transition possessions. She's just constantly fueling that Mercury offense, and I would just really shudder to think where this team would be without her. I'm guessing you don't have Diggins Smith at number seven, or else you would have said something by now, but what do you think of that? Well, I do just want to say seven, eight, and nine are where I had the most difficulty. I struggled over these these three with excruciating uh, thought. Uh, it, it took me a long time to finally settle into to the order that I was going to have my seventh, eighth, and ninth best players in the WNBA. Uh, I did end up with Skylar Diggins-Smith ninth. Um, I do think she is more of a regular season floor raiser than the two players I have above her. I agree with you that she's as good at getting to the rim and finishing at the rim as basically any small guard I've I've ever seen. 54% of her shots coming in the paint this year. Not all of them at the rim, but about 30% of them are. She shoots a lot of runners. She does shoot a lot of runners, but still a 30% frequency at the rim is pretty good. She's really turned into a, a plus finisher with both hands. I think she's maybe the the worst defensive player of this group of guards I have here. You know, maybe some would probably say Kelsey Plum because Skylar Diggins Smith will at least pressure up on the ball, even if she's a mess. I think she's gotten a lot better on defense. If yeah, me. she she might be a little bit of a mess of a, a team defender uh, at times. You know, she can lose. She can definitely lose her player. I think when she's off the ball, her shooting does wax and wane. I would say more so than the two players above her 31% from three this year, 37% or higher the two previous seasons, and then under 30% in 2018. There's, there's more volatility in her shot. I would say she's like, she's not a natural three point shooter necessarily. I wouldn't say she like shoots an easy ball. I don't think she has a case for like the best passing guard or in that neighborhood of best passing guards, but she's a very, very good playmaking point. I I would say, you know, she's not just, a scorer, but the tiebreaker for me really for why she ended up ninth and the players above her are above her is that she just has not had the playoff productivity yet, which is tough because we're essentially dealing with players with just a couple of playoff series between them. So, you know, you're dealing with tiebreakers of like, you know, maybe eight or 10 games, but Kelsey Plum, spoiler alert, the player that I have seven has had (laughs) two really good playoff series already. And Skylar Diggins-Smith has had two pretty disappointing playoff series to this point. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. The one counter I would have to that was that Plum's role in those playoff series was just much different than what she was doing now. Um, but she had massive usage, it's, yeah, especially no, last right. year against the Mercury. But again, Skylar Diggins-Smith didn't have to like play against the Mercury, you know? You're right, you're right. And, and Kelsey Plum was also on my list, um, not, not at number seven. But, you know, when I was looking at Plum's case to be on this list, I saw a lot of parallels between her game and Diggins-Smith's, and it's not just that they're left-handed. She is another very high-usage guard who is getting into the paint at will and finishing at the rim very, very well. Maybe not as well as Diggins Smith, um, but she does have that ability to kind of pull back and basically pull up from anywhere, which is maybe more than offsets itself. So should I get into Plum? Because I had Plum seven. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, she's the second leading scorer in the league this year and five and a half assists per game. Before today, 59% true shooting. And maybe she's not as good at putting pressure on the rim as Skylar Diggins-Smith, but she's probably number two, honestly, at least in terms of players that are really looking to kind of score I agree. for themselves. You know, she, I think a lot of the reason that she's not putting as much pressure at the rim is because she has a 50% three-point attempt rate. And that is <laughs> very high for a player, especially over 25% usage. But when she's getting into the paint, she, I mean, you know, this didn't kind of account into our statistics or anything, but how many 
great finishes did she have today against Connecticut? I mean, she's she's really really good at actually getting into the the rim, and and that sort of is what separated her from you know let's say like a Sabrina Ionescu who has in a lot of ways kind of similar overview stats. You know, twenty five percent usage, fifty percent three point attempt rate, fifty nine fifty eight percent true shooting. But Kelsey Plum can blow by her defender in a way she does not need a screen like so many other guards in the league need a screen. Not Diggins Smith. Obviously, Diggins Smith doesn't need a screen. But like we're talking about the two guards in the league that can just like get into triple threat and just absolutely do whatever you want, whether it's a step back three for Plum, getting by her defender and forcing the rotation. You know, this is something that we talked about off pod before. But like the difference between her and Jackie Young is that Jackie Young is pretty much scoring over her assignment, tough offense, right? You're you're getting to your spot. You're putting your defender in, you know, either in a compromised position to fall or you're, you're scoring over a good contest or just kind of using your body to, to get to your spot. But you're scoring over your own individual defender where Kelsey Plum is making the defense rotate and putting yeah. them in a compromised position in a way that a lot of guards in the WNBA are just not doing. Making your teammates better, right? The other thing that came up to me when I was thinking of Kelsey Plum and Diggin Smith for that matter they just don't get tired, <laughs> you know. I mean, I mean, it's just crazy with how much energy they play with. On, I, I think this was originally for Diggin Smith uh, on the defensive end of the ball because she her on ball activity has just picked up so much. Um, I think she currently leads the WNBA in total steals, but but plumb to an extent as well. Like for the role she plays on offense, she has quickly risen into this very very high usage and, and, and heavy volume player, and it doesn't seem to be affecting her offense at all. Like among guards. I think Plum is probably the best overall offensive player in the WNBA right now. She's maybe not the best, you know, shot creator for others, but I mean, it, when you're shooting, when you're taking half your shots from three-point range and you're scoring it like that, it doesn't matter because you're still you're still manufacturing really, really, really efficient offense. And she's still over five assists per game. It's not like yeah, she's, no, yeah. you know, not, not passing the ball out there. The other thing I think that is an important differentiator for me in trying to figure out this ranking is just Kelsey Plum's malleability. Like, even if you don't think she's as good as Courtney Vandersloot or Skylar Diggins-Smith, if you have those players, like you're playing a Courtney Vandersloot offense uh, and same to some extent to Skylar Diggins-Smith. Like those are lead guards that, you know, they they aren't doing as much for you off the ball. You know, Vandersloot has obviously had a, a, a few game-winning catch-and-shoot jumpers, but, you know, she's Throughout still, the course of a game, yeah. Right. You know, we've seen Kelsey Plum be very effective as a lead guard. We've seen her be very effective as a secondary playmaker. We've seen her perhaps inexplicably be used as a sixth player and excel in that role. You know, she, because she does just shoot an easier ball, she has a, a, she's a very good spot up player. You can play her alongside a Chelsea Gray, who's doing a lot of initiating and a lot of table setting when, when Gray is out there. And then when Gray is off the court, you know, you see Kelsey play in in a totally different way where she's kind of controlling the offense and everything's running through her. So I think that malleability for me was a very important factor. That's a very good point. Who did you have at number eight? Oh, do you want to say where you had Plum before we move on? Oh, I had Plum at 10. Yeah. Okay. All right. So kind of rounding out your list. But again, it was the same tier. I have one, two, three, four, five, six. I have seven players in tier four. Obviously only four of them are in the top 10, but yeah, I had her at 10. Okay, number eight, I had Jewel Lloyd. Okay, and this is interesting because I didn't ha- I didn't have Jewel in my top ten. What? Uh, why is Jewel? She's kind of been struggling this year. What? Why is Jewel staying in your top ten? Yeah, I am a little bit kind of trusting the body of work here. Uh, I do think she has kind of taken. You know, she's not impervious to maybe a negative situation. She's taken the biggest hit to me 
within the Gabby Williams experience because she's just not able to kind of get to her high efficiency zones as much as she was last year. Um, and she's really struggling from two point range this year. I think because of that, there's just not as much room for her to kind of do the jewel Lloyd things, but you know, in a really good environment, even an average environment, we've seen her be, you know, a 55, 56% true shooting type player, even if, you know, it's probably going to be more 52, 53. She's not the offensive engine that these other guards are, you know, Skylar Diggins-Smith, Kelsey Plum, even Courtney Vandersloot, but she's as good of like a second option as you're you're going to get. She's definitely, I think, the best defensive perimeter player on this list, and it's there's a few of them in a row I have here, you know, between Plum and, and Diggins-Smith and Vandersloot, who will kind of uh, be towards the bottom here for me. Well, Lloyd is easily the best defender of that group. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um you know, she she's more reliant on the mid-range game than the, than the two-point guards we've talked about. But, you know, I, I just can't kind of take one tougher season where she's playing with a non-shooter pretty much all the time or at least one non-shooter pretty much all the time and, and kind of completely falter for it. Because if I was, you know, starting, you know, building it from the ground up and, and going to kind of build a team the way I, I think basketball is, is optimized, like Jewel Lloyd would still be very high on my list and wouldn't play her next to a Gabby Williams necessarily. Okay. All good points there. All good points there. And like I said, Jewel Lloyd is still in my, in my tier four. Uh, One other thing I would say about Lloyd, she's probably like the best tough shot maker on this list, but the worst good shot creator for sure. Right. Well, I value good shot creation. So that, that would be another reason for me not to have her in my top 10, but no, I can see where you're going with that. Definitely. But she's still an elite play finisher. You know, you maybe don't want her running pick and rolls for 15, 20 times a game, but she's still going to knock down threes at a, at a pretty good clip. And, you know, she can give you some two-point scoring, I guess. So just to clarify, Stephen, you think that the, this huge dip in her two-point scoring is because she's not playing with as much as much offensive firepower, right? I do think some of it is coming from her own shot selection. Uh, she's just not getting to the rim as much as she because was. Because this year. is not the first time in her career that we've seen Jewel Lloyd go on extended shooting slumps. No, but I think this is the most extreme version, at least since kind of Lloyd's turned, you know, gotten to this level of a player. I would say. Okay. Okay. I mean, the last time she was below forty percent from two, uh, was a rookie season was never actually. Sorry, I was, <laughs> I was looking at something else. Um, but the last time she was below 40% from the field was that 2019 season where, you know, it was another tough offensive environment. So Yeah, she was she was basically carrying the entire offensive burden from the perimeter. That's fair. That's a fair point. For me, that kind of her ceiling is established as an offensive player. And that's like we we've seen what she can do in a favorable offensive ecosystem, and we've seen what she can do in a less than favorable offensive ecosystem. So I don't know. And if, if she was having a better season, yeah, she probably would have been in my top 10. Um, but but, but I, I think... do think for me, at least having an A-level, you know, Robin, second best type of player is more valuable than having a B-level self-creator that isn't really going to drive, you know, super, super efficient offense for themselves and others. What do you mean by that? Like, I would rather have... You know, someone who they're they're not going to do as much creation, but they they can fit alongside anybody, rather than someone who who's going to do more creation. But you have a they're not as good as it as the very best creators in the league, and also they're a little bit harder to kind of fit other pieces. Uh, okay, around. okay, I see, I see, I see. So this is this is kind of going to the point of 
Would you rather have one top five player and one top 30 player or two top 10 players, right? Yeah, I guess so. Sure. Okay. okay. I, who said that? Was that, was that Peter Kilkelly? I don't know. There was some discussion on my, on my timeline that uh, about that, but I think that kind of fits into what you're saying. But uh, Okay, so that's who you had eighth? That was eight for me. Who's eight that for was you? Eight. Okay. Uh, I had Courtney Vandersloot at number eight, and I'll be honest, this one, you know, I had to throw a bone to my, my Sky fan friends. This still might be a little high for Sloot this year. Uh, I don't think that her downtick in production means that she's been less effective of a player, though. I think she just has the ball in her hands less. Because her usage rate is actually the highest it's ever been. The Sky have just been less reliant on Vandersloot to initiate everything and to push, particularly in the half court. I mean, if you look at her numbers, uh, her frequencies compared to 2021, uh, in the half court, she's assisting on only 31.9% of her teammates' baskets, down from 39.2%. And those numbers are also down in transition. She's getting out in transition less. I think to me, like, like as someone who watches the team, that is just the sky taking a more egalitarian approach to things. And they actually have a, a competent backup player, or two competent backup players for her for the first time in uh, ever. So that also factors into it. But I think she's still just the best player I hate this term, but pure point guard in the league and kind of maximizing the talents of her teammates. As you would like to say, she passes her teammates open. She really does make her teammates better. It's not like she's been bad at scoring the basketball. I mean, over half of her points have come in the paint this season. And despite having competent backups, her her on-off splits are still really, really good. So I don't know. I, I think this is, she's maybe more of a floor raiser than a ceiling raiser, as you would like to say. But from the point guard position, I would still struggle to think of a player who I'd rather have running my team in a five-game series. I also think that she's a little bit underrated as a defensive player. You know, she, I agree. Remember in 2019 when her reputation was just like a dumpster fire defensively? Like she, that's, that's, It's weird because defensive reputation, I feel like, always takes a couple years to come around. Because when she first came to the league, yeah, she was awful on defense. But I would say she's been an acceptable defender, at least, since maybe 2015, 2016, when she put on a few extra pounds of muscle. In fact, I, I say her defense hasn't been as good this year as it was previously. But she's still better than Plum and better than Diggins Smith at the point of attack, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I would probably agree with that. And I just think, you know, she's she's not going to kill you when she's off the ball. You know, she'll get right, lost a couple right. times for sure. But, I mean, she's been one of the biggest on-off differential players, you know, for the better part of a decade now on offense Maybe this last couple years have been a little bit better because there's been more competent backup point guard play on the roster. But I ended up with Courtney Vandersloot at number 11 in the same tier as all these players, mind you. So uh, don't don't get too mad at me out there. But and, you know, she very well could have been finals MVP like she outplayed her counterpart, Skylar Diggins Smith, who we both have ahead of her in that series. Um, So I understand if people are listening to this and they just think that this is way too low, but even as some of her previous late game foibles have been kind of squashed a little bit with some big, big late game shots, you know, she's still not necessarily a player who I think is, you know, you're really going to kind of want to have actually score you the ball uh, possession after possession late in really big games. Is that unfair to say, do you think? No, it's not unfair. I mean, she certainly doesn't have the self-creation ability of Diggins Smith or, or Plum or Lloyd. I agree. Uh, did you have anything else to, to say about Vandersloot? No, not really. Only to reiterate that uh, just because her, her counting stats are down a little bit doesn't mean she's any worse of a player. 
and the sky are i think a lot more egalitarian this year than they really are in they really past. are so so much of what they do like i said is going through parker or even misman to, to for that point like so much of their offense is is through cuts instead of pick and rolls and vanderson is she's a pretty good cutter as well herself but you know it's, she just doesn't have the ball in her hands as much so we've gone one through nine for me as well as number 11 who was number nine on your list I had Neka Agumake at number nine, and it felt great to put Neka Agumake back on this list because it felt like we haven't seen her healthy for, gosh, how many seasons now? At least two. And I think maybe while we are probably never going to see MVP Neka ever again with the 75 true shooting percentage or whatever that number was, uh, what ultimately, you know, her game just has very few weaknesses. Um, she almost always makes the right play. She leverages her strengths. Um, I think her game is a little more versatile than she's given credit for. If, if you go into her synergy stats, 90% post-up frequency, 17% spot-up frequency, 15% cut, 13% roll man, 12% transition. And that may be a little low for my taste, but that's a nice mix of play types. I'm, I mean, I'm you, surprised you, that post-up number is even that high. Yeah, I mean, well, you, my point is you can't really say make NECA beat us by, by make her doing this. Because she'll just beat you a different way. I mean, she's just so quietly effective at what she is. Every year, you know what you're getting from her. And that's really, really good play finishing, solid rebounding, and opportunistic playmaking on the defensive end of the floor. You know, she's not a premier shot blocker. So that's, I think, why her name isn't commonly thrown out there as one of the best rim protectors in the league. But she's still, for me, one of the most... But uh, she, Sorry, I just wanted to say, like, she doesn't have the blocks, but she always is leading bigs in steals. Like, she's making yeah. defensive plays still. It's just not the same type of defensive plays that other bigs are making. Exactly. And, and honestly, a big leading the league in steals means more for me than a big leading the league in blocks, because that's not something you really expect from that position. And, you know, maybe this has something to do with her playing more of the four again, rather than the five with, with Liz Cambagentown, but... I don't know, given how much Liz Cambage is off the floor these days, you know, Agumake is still, she's still covering a lot of ground defensively. And I think just a huge part of that is just her basketball IQ, her feel for the game, her, her defensive uh, acumen, throwing a lot of cliche terms out there. But for her, well, I think it does I, apply. If I can throw another cliche out there, sure, yeah, you know, there are a lot of players that are efficient in the way that they score the ball efficiently. They have high efficiency numbers but she's just so efficient in her movement. There's just like no wasted movements in kind of what she she does. True. Like everything is just purposeful, I guess is the term I'm looking for. She and, doesn't waste a lot of time or movement. You, you never see her like thinking too much out there, if I could put it that way. And she's not kind of, you know, taking a few dribbles before kind of making her move. Like everything is just very much quick and decisive. And I think the reason why I have her 10 and not higher is that even though she has been an extremely effective offensive player, you know, 18 points a game, which is, I mean, like you said, very happy to just have Neko Ogumike back in this conversation. Um, but 18 points a game, seven rebounds, the two assists, the two stocks, 62.5% true shooting, a, a very, very good number. But she's just not the same player defensively that she was a few years ago, you know, 2019, 2018, just in terms of being a top tier elite option, whether you wanted to play her traditionally guarding post players or have her switch out on the perimeter. You know, she was honestly probably the best switching big in the league there for, you know, the better part of a half decade. So um, it's nice to see her stock numbers come back to kind of what we've come to expect. But I do think there's been a, just a little bit of kind of small areas of regression where she's just not the peak Neko Gumike, maybe. 
I agree, and, and I kind of had the similar thought. What ultimately made her a Tier 4 player instead of a Tier 3 player for me, at least compared to Parker or Fowles, because they're more or less the same position there, is because she just doesn't impact a game as strongly. And that's no slight to Agumake, because like we said, she does basically everything for you at a very efficient level, and she has a tremendous feel for the game, but she just doesn't have that kind of ceiling that, that Parker or Fowles does. But uh, yeah, I mean, she I had her ranked number 9. Again, it feels great to have her back in there, because, you know, I mean... Her time, her time in the WNBA is not done yet. I, I do not want to stop watching Naka Gumake play basketball. One of my favorite players ever, and uh, she's really she's back at it. She's very efficient with the basketball. She's very versatile with it, and uh, I think she's a top ten player. So then you also talked about your tenth player. Um, yes, Kelsey, I have Kelsey Plum at ten. Kelsey yeah. Plum. Um, who else did you have kind of rounding out this tier? I had Alyssa Thomas, Nafisa Collier, and Jewel Lloyd. Okay. All right, I think that's and I honestly had no clue in the world what to do with Collier, but we were saying oh, we should probably we should probably consider Collier this year. Uh, she hasn't played injury free since like her rookie season, so I wasn't really sure where to put her. But if if we were including her, I think she would have deserved a mention around that area at least. She was my twelfth player. She was the last player I had in this tier. So okay, so 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 talk to us about Nafisa Collier even for a little bit. Yeah, it I may mean, have been a did, while. She like you're saying, she did have a down year last year, and obviously we haven't seen her this year. I think a lot of her down year was just three point shooting luck. She was only twenty five percent behind the line, and some of that you can even just point to probably just not shooting enough threes to give her numbers a chance to normalize. She's just for whatever reason a very low volume three-point shooter for a player that previous to last year hits them at a pretty good rate but you know if you just normalize her her shooting to 35 percent from three which i think is a pretty reasonable for her track record instead of 25 percent, you know she would have been 55 percent true shooting so that hypothetical difference in just shooting luck makes a massive difference because she's only taking you know 83 threes over the course of the season but i mean it's the same kind of concerns about collier and concern isn't even the right word because it is it works very advantageously for the Lynx because she is a little bit of a, a tweener, I guess. But Reeve very clearly wants to play her, at least with this current roster construction, as a three. So I think that lack of three-point willingness kind of hurts your offense, your overall offense, a little bit more if that player is a three than if they were a four. I guess, let me ask you, if you were building a team and Nafisa Collier was a core component of that team, would you want her to be a three or a four for your team? A four, without a doubt. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, there's maybe one or two players that play the four pretty regularly that she has a hard time kind of matching with strength-wise, but I think over the course of, you know, the matchups that you're going to get and what she brings to you on both ends, she's she's an outstanding power forward. She's not—this is something we've talked about before several times, but she's not a tweener in that she doesn't really have—in that she's not good enough to play either position. She's a tweener in that she is good enough to play either position, and she— gives individual strengths and advantages at either position no matter what she is but i think the advantages that she brings as a power forward are more valuable than what she brings as a small forward yeah she she creates uh, a matchup advantage regardless of whatever position yeah, exactly. she's playing and exactly. there are a lot of players like you're saying who can they can play multiple positions you can get away with them playing multiple positions but they don't create an advantage for you at multiple positions and nafisa collier definitely does do that Okay, uh, who'd you have at number 10? Uh, Neka Gumake. Oh, Neka Gumake, right. Yeah, so my, my list rounded out at Neka, Courtney Vandersloot, and then Collier was the last player in that tier. Okay, so so no other players you wanted to mention? That that was, I mean, I have a couple of players who, like, I considered in the list, you know, 
Alyssa Thomas, Bree Jones, Jackie Young, Chelsea Gray. Do you want to talk Alyssa Thomas? I know she was in this too. Yeah, I'll talk. I briefly had Alyssa Thomas in my top 10, but I had to take her out because of all the players we're talking about, you can't say of any of them, ah, they make their half-court offense worse or, oh, you really can't do this when they're on the floor. And that's it's just so frustrating when talking about Alyssa Thomas because she's such an, a unique basketball player and a uniquely good basketball player. I mean, first of all, if we're talking defensive player of the year, I think Alyssa Thomas is probably in the top three right now. I mean, she's just absolutely relentless no matter where she's defending. She defends everywhere. Uh, she's more of a ball hawk than like a rim protector, but in terms of value to her team, but like the transition opportunity, how many times have we talked about this? The transition opportunities she, she ignites for the Connecticut Sun are so darn valuable. Um, She's maybe been a little less valuable in getting those transition opportunities than years past. But guess what? She's making free throws now. She's shooting 74% from free, from free throw. That's that's not bad. Considering how often she gets there, that's that's actually pretty good. I don't know if you heard, but like she's got a problem with her shoulders. So, so she has just like this weird free throw form. But she's knocking them down at a pretty good clip now, 74%. Honestly, um, I trust her at the line, to be honest with you. Like, I'm not really worried when Alyssa Thomas goes to the free throw line. There you go. I mean, remember in 2019, as long as we're talking about 2019, remember when they said, oh, the Sun were such a bad free throw shooting team? I'm like, you know that's because of one player, right? Not the case anymore. Um, what, I, what ultimately kept her out of the top 10 for me is we saw in 2019 and in 2020 this sheer willpower of Alyssa Thomas to raise the ceiling of the Connecticut Sun, you know, playing... 44 out of 45 overtime minutes and almost having a triple double or whatever can she still do that i'm not sure if she can which is not a slight to her or anything like that but she's kind of cooled off since the tour start to the season and i don't know she's like i said before she takes a lot away from her team's half court offense granted i think she is a good screener and a good roller and she does have that floater shot down now but uh i just can't put her in my top 10 by the way, uh, 78% from the free throw line in those playoffs for Alyssa Thomas. She, okay. she, she turned it around. I she guess, around. you know, for me, for Thomas, like, how much does her value decrease playing next to literally any other center in the league other than John Quell Jones? Like, particularly yeah, in the playoffs, what were we going to say? And, and that's not an offensive ecosystem thing, as we've been saying. Like, that's an Alyssa Thomas thing. Yeah, that's a skill set thing. That That is your four is 100% paint bound. And, yeah, it's great that she can run the break for you and that she is a one player transition offense within herself. But well, what you if know, your opponent isn't missing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What if you have to get a half court possession late in the game? You know, what does like an AT fouls front court or an AT Bree Turner, AT Ezzy, you know, you just put her on the same team with kind of any of these traditional paint bound centers, even if they're very good. And I think your playoff ceiling just lowers considerably. So, um, I mean, I love Alyssa Thomas. You know, she's she's one of my very favorite players in the league. But, you know, she still has limitations as a basketball player. Are we ready to wrap things up? Yeah, I think so. This was fun. Thank you all so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the, uh, the break from our bad show. Uh, <laughs> if you want to support the show, you can do so by subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at DoubleDownWNBA. You can follow Eric at Nemchak E or myself at Trinkwald. And not sure what we'll be doing next time we record, but I'm sure it'll be uh, something fun. It'll be something. It'll be. I don't know about fun. It'll be something. Uh, take care, everybody. Thank you so much again for listening. Uh, we'll talk to you when we talk to you.